You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. Every week, we bring national security law to you, whether you're quarantined at home or jetting around the planet. I'm Elisa. I'm Yvette, and I'm looking forward to jetting around the planet myself. Today, we're here to give you a dizzying roundup of national security law news. That's right. So let's get right to it. First, who can ignore this? Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy has introduced a bill to prevent anyone who is a member of QAnon from holding a security clearance. Uh, that makes sense to me, but there is a glaring legal infirmity here. What is it? Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> all right. Yes, of course, we all agree that if you've abandoned all common sense and become radicalized by QAnon, you're forgetting critical thinking, you've succumbed to the cult of QAnon, you probably should not be entrusted with national security information. But Yvette, what is the problem here? Let's talk about the ways to see it. But first, let's talk about the scope of the proposed bill. So Murphy's bill wants to add two questions to the security clearance process. For those of you outside of government, one of the steps in getting your security clearance is you have to fill out a questionnaire and you have to declare that you have never tried to overthrow the government. You have to declare that you haven't broken any laws, et cetera, et cetera. So this bill wants to add two questions specifically whether an individual has ever been a member of, associated with, or knowingly engaged in activities conducted by an organization or movement like QAnon that spreads conspiracy theories and false information about the government. And the second question asks applicants whether they participated in the January 6th Capitol riots or a similar Stop the Steal event. Supporters of the proposed bill agree that yes, individuals who succumb to or take part in such conspiracy theory movements like QAnon should not be trusted with our nation's secrets, plain and simple. Opponents, however, raise the question of whether these additions are redundant in that the clearance application already asks applicants if they have been part of any organization that has sought to overthrow the government. The fact that QAnon is such a decentralized movement, basically a digitally oriented community for disinformation, only complicates things further. The proposed bill might not be the silver bullet, but it's a smaller step in the right direction. For my money, it's of concern, you know, I would, I would hate for people to try and weasel out of the terms of the bill by saying, well, you know, there's alternative facts or there's, you know, our perspective that these things are true and therefore it's not disinformation, but more to be found. Agreed. And I will say, although it starts to make sense to really expand, because I think a lot of those questions were derived from sort of the Red Scare era. There were Communist Party focused or Nazi Party focused. And, you know, threats change and morph over time. And so they're going to look different. But there is a fatal legal flaw, which is called the separation of powers. Remember that? It was in the, oh, what was that thing again? Constitution. I so learned about executive- that way back in the day. <laughs> I remember that. But the point is that the control of things pertaining to national security is really within the province of the executive branch, whether you read the plain terms of Article 2 of the Constitution or you go back and mine the Federalist Papers, which I would just point out were propaganda to get buy-in, remember, from people to agree to the Constitution. So look at them in that light. They really were sort of the Twitter posts of their day. So let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about some of the yawning gaps that we have discovered that exist within the Constitution from a national security law perspective. First, the pardon power. It's utterly without condition, and it has been abused, as we learned from Helen Balwark in previous podcasts, by presidents past, 
and passed since uh, the current president has not pardoned anybody at all. So it wouldn't even be fair to, <laughs> to, to make an assumption about President Biden. However, as it stands, a president could commit a crime in the nature of a conspiracy with a group of three other persons. And if they're all charged and convicted of conspiring with him or in the future, the president could pardon those people. For years, prosecutors mm. have used co-conspirators as witnesses against defendants in court. And if the FBI arrests a made guy in La Cosa Nostra, they will try to flip him to get him to testify against the Don of the organization. They do that by bringing serious charges so that the so-called main guy, the soldier, has an incentive to testify against the Don, the ringleader. You pardon a conspirator, he is not going to testify against you. And even though, you know, we could discuss how people with pardons may have lost their shield of immunity, it's not as effective as a person who is actually facing criminal sanction. Many, many, many scholars agree that no president should have the authority to pardon someone who is a co-conspirator, but it seems that the founders basically did not anticipate this, or they just hoped for the best. Yawning gap number one. Yes, yawning. Um, and kind of interesting because this is, you know, this is not the end of it, I'm quite sure, but this brings us to the concept of high crimes and misdemeanors because this term was not defined in the Constitution itself. And I understand there was some discourse in the Federalist Papers. Much was made of that, I think, during the hearings. But it, you know, I don't get the sense that there's huge agreement on that. And it's certainly that dialogue did not seem to anticipate um, some of the things that we're seeing right now. And we probably, as we sit here, can't anticipate some of the things that will happen in the future. God forbid, but it's possible. So you might remember that Noah Feldman, who was a professor from Harvard, spoke about the emoluments clause during the impeachment proceedings, and he had quite a few opinions, and then they were countered by yet others. So again, these matters really were not completely predicted, and I think that's a, another yawning gap. So, Elisa, we're covering you know these different gaps. We're going to actually do an entire podcast on the gaps in the Constitution that have been uncovered recently in the future. So be on the lookout for that. In other news, we've heard more rumblings on the revocation or modification of Section 230 of the Telecommunications Decency Act. And this could be a red herring. Change this law and the problem of QAnon, internet radicalization, and the use of major and minor platforms to help recruit people into extremist thinking will fall by the wayside, restoring good order in our shared understanding of American values. I don't think so. At least three guests we've had with expertise in this area have made clear that unless and until people are educated into how they're being fooled, hoodwinked, radicalized, bamboozled, and generally sucked into cults, nothing like the elimination of uh, Section 230 will serve as a magic bullet. You know, that's interesting because I am also noticing a number of advocacy ads, as we often get in Washington, D.C., which are clearly sponsored by some of the platforms. Um, and they depict average Americans. They're never, you know, too attractive or too rich, but, you know, it's just every man, every woman. And there they are somehow shielded by the current existence of 230 as if it somehow protects them. Really, they're being fooled, hoodwinked. And right, No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I do think it's hilarious that this stuff is now materialized and we're seeing it on cable television, if not network television. But this brings us to the issue of declassification. And that is something that is fully within the executive's power to do, as interpreted over and over again by courts and certainly by a plain reading of the Constitution. 
But uh, last week, not this week, the president declassified information about the murder, very vicious, brutal, shameful murder of, of Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was at the time uh, working for the Washington Post. And the declassified document, frankly, pointed directly to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, as sort of signing off on it, um, I, I don't remember that it named him as being sort of the brainchild of it, but nevertheless... The United States at the very same time withdrew some of the support for the conflict in Yemen, which was really done to help the Saudis. So in case you take these little pieces and what you're seeing here is is a seismic political shift in how we're going to be dealing with foreign governments and foreign countries and what appetite and tolerance we may have for this kind of behavior in the future. Indeed. And White House spokesperson Jen Psaki explained that President Biden was going to be engaging with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia at the level of the king, which is a shift from the past administration that really did engage with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince who is seen as really the center of power. So it's very, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how our foreign policy changes under the new administration and how our posture towards Saudi Arabia shifts with the Biden administration. And that leads us to another development in the Middle East. The United States has begun the process of restarting negotiations with Iran, Saudi's enemy. President Biden let the younger crown prince know that he did not have official meetings with the juniors and that all negotiations with the kingdom will involve the king and not the crown prince as we start thinking about ways to either re-enter the Iran deal that the Trump administration deprecated or come up with our own deal. Yeah, it's a it's this is just you're really seeing a big, big, big changes. And interestingly enough, some of it is sort of taking place more quietly. I know Trump was into a lot of fanfare, big announcement sort of saber rattling, if you will. And that is kind of not how this is unfolding. And it's just a really big deal. Let's shift over to at least one Supreme Court opinion that has come down recently um, that may could have an impact, I suppose, on matters pertaining to national security or certainly those colleagues and friends of ours who have FOIA practices and are interested in gaining information from the government. As everybody on this listening to this cast knows, the Freedom of Information Act is sort of a sunlight statute that was intended to make sort of the inner workings of government available to everyone who really wanted to get a sense of what was going on. But there are exceptions. And one of those exceptions that has been recognized repeatedly is something known as the deliberative process privilege uh, for agencies. The idea being that you want agencies to be able to have candid discussions before they reach massive uh, regulatory or legal decisions. So this deliberative process privilege is is one of a whole bunch of them. You can imagine law enforcement privilege, national securities or classified information and the like. Um, But there are carve outs. You're not just entitled to get this information, which would otherwise be meriting protection. But what's kind of interesting is a lot of these deliberative decisions pertain to matters of national security or certainly national security adjacent, even if they're not exactly classified. But new justice Coney Barrett issued an opinion, 11 page opinion on this which will hyperlink in the notes. But I think it's a nuanced opinion. It's worth looking at. And in my perception, and I I welcome correction by any listeners, I think it slightly expands the idea of what this privilege would cover in terms of draft documents. And it might be worth looking at. Um, Certainly anybody listening to this who's a journalist will probably need to better understand what now can be protected. So Yvette? 
Indeed. And I will say the FOIA jurisprudence is kind of like a a silent but deadly killer, like hanging out in the law. Um, I remember one of the first uh, things I worked on as a young Air Force jab was FOIA cases. And there's a book that reminded me of the phone book. Millennials, look up what that is (laughs) about what the FOIA law was. And it was, it was very, very detailed and nuanced, but it's very significant because it does give citizens the ability to see what is being done in their name um, by their government. But they're also- With, be, with their tax dollars at that With their, right? tax, with dollars, their tax dollars. Right. But there also you know, needs to be some ability for people to uh, communicate and before they've arrived at a final decision to communicate openly and honestly with senior leaders so they can get the best decisions. And not all of those, um, not all of those opinions is necessarily appropriate for public consumption until it's final. So I can't wait to see what permutations that giant, it was always a neon colored book that we would get the FOIA practice. (laughs) I can't wait to see what permutations that giant book takes. But let's shift gears to another part of the Supreme Court practice, which is the petitions that were filed by the Trump administration that were put on hold by the Biden administration. So there were three petitions that had to do with putting conditions on federal funds given to cities. Now, that sounds perfectly reasonable until you recall that the Trump administration had repeatedly used the narrative that certain cities populated mostly by Democrats were labeled sanctuary cities. And sanctuary cities were ostensibly those where undocumented people could go because the the cities were not cooperating, were not willing to cooperate with the federal government with respect to deportation cases. So there's some litigation before the court now, and the approach has turned with the incoming uh, administration. The concept of sanctuary cities was part of Trump political campaign rhetoric originally, and many people felt that it was an effort to vilify immigrants. Data, of course, shows something different, which is that immigrants are more likely to obey the law than, you know, natural born citizens or people who are born in this country. And also new citizens test higher on their knowledge of civics than most Americans by a margin of more than 30%. So there's a lot of like pushback on whether or not the sanctuary cities narrative was more political than fact-based. Holding the petition seems expected by the Biden administration. Yeah, and I, I think this is this signals at least until there is a different administration, sort of the end of this idea that sanctuary cities somehow have to be cowed or changed, or that there really is such a thing as a sanctuary city. I think you might remember too. One of the things that happened, I think, during some of the defense of what had happened, there were anecdotes that were used, you know, well, you know, they didn't turn so-and-so over to ICE, you know, who had been released by the police, and then they went on to reoffend. And it turned out in many of those instances, ICE had failed to pick them up, that there had been some sort of a problem with that. So it's, it's always kind of interesting when you drill down, you look a little bit closer with respect to these individual cases and how these narratives get spun. So this is, I mean, this signals the end, I think, of this policy. And there will be questions, you know, I think going forward about why this was done and whether it was political, regardless of whether Trump is the one implementing it or whether Biden is the one removing it. But it goes back to longstanding policy, which, by the way, spans several administrations, including President Bush's. And as a practical matter, uh, the immigration stats in terms of deportation and enforcement action under the second half of Obama's administration were actually pretty tough. And so it really was sort of a construct. But let's move on. Let's talk about 
China. China, China, China. I am not going to do the impression. <laughs> the commander of the Pacific has warned that China is likely to move on Taiwan and that Guam, which is a territory of the United States, is also a target. This coincides with recent press reports that former President Trump told high-level officials that he could care less about Taiwan and he would not intervene if China invaded or were to that effect. At the same time, senior defense analysts have warned that we cannot compete against China in the tech and cyber cold war by ascribing blame to China for problems, and we must focus on U.S. excellence in order to protect national security, which is, you know, people who watch the Obama administration will recognize they had a famous pivot to Asia and concentration on China, but it was meant to be kind of like less directly acrimonious, but still um, acknowledging the, you know, the, the rise of China and the competition with a near peer adversary, both in terms of economics and in terms of cyber and hot warfare. So I'm sure we will be filling these airwaves uh, in the future regarding the changes in China policy. But I have a question for you, Yvette, because I know you served in the military, but have you read Sun Tzu's Art of War? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, right. But, you know, one of the things that I find interesting is sort of be quiet, right? Never underestimate the enemy. It's just all of these things that I feel like we threw right out the window. How about if we're really loud, we make a lot of threats, and we forget that we should just be, to a large extent, controlling our own excellence and developing... You know, God, the U.S. is a terrific seat of amazing brain power. If we continue to focus on China, why are we putting our energy on just becoming more and more excellent? Certainly, we shouldn't be so loud about it. I do wonder about the wisdom of that and the efficacy of that sort of thing. It feels it feels like it's to an audience in the United States and not with a goal in mind. Yeah, and I think, you know, just comparing the American approach to some of these uh, national security issues, right? There is a completely different philosophy, right, behind, you know, the way that Asian countries think about strategy and timeframes, right? Americans are very short bursts of energy. We, uh, we operate on quarterly reports, whereas like the Chinese think about things on terms of dynasty and millennia. And so they have just a completely different perspective. And I think that, you know, the art of war, while it is taught in all of the military academies and ROTC, <laughs> as I am a graduate, it doesn't necessarily mean that it like that philosophy is adopted on a widespread basis. I think that's a that's a piece of know your enemy, but and know how he thinks. But I don't know if we necessarily think like our enemies all the time. So yeah, there there was that the put yourself in the enemy, think like the enemy. But absolutely, um, we'll come back to China in, in the last bit of this cast, but. Uh, interesting developments, of course, in cyberspace again, because the CISA, the Cyber Information Security Agency, has now put out a warning to companies, basically including every company that has some U.S. national security interest that's private, that's public sector, that it really has to download patches on its Microsoft-based systems, which quite frankly are most of them, and that they should assume that they've been breached and that malware remains active on their system. So you might recall that Microsoft itself announced that four zero-day vulnerabilities were discovered within its code, zero-day being one for which you know no fix, basically no code or patch is really known or understood. So um, if you're a lawyer in national security law and you have responsibilities as a lawyer over you know, to offer legal protections for systems or your 
supervising a chief information security officer somewhere for legal matters, you need to wake up from your COVID fog and we're all in it and make sure that this is done. Because if it's not, it's going to be, I think what we can call, fairly call, not a good look. Indeed. And check out our past uh, podcast on the NDAA in which we discuss the role of the Cyber Information Security Agency and uh, how prominent and how important it is. This is like one of these backwaters, kind of like FOIA, where you don't really know how important it is until you need it. CISA is one of these lesser known agencies that's getting more and more prominent by the minute. And when you talk about like zero day breaches in Microsoft, which the majority of the federal government runs on, we've, we've got some work to do over at CISA. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. And one last thing to note, because uh, some of this is, it takes us back to China, is this particular one, I think that we're referring to, there is no confirmed source of it, but there are public, there's public attribution. I think that some of it could have been a foreign government, as we've mentioned before. But this brings us to something that I happened to notice this morning when I opened up my, it might've been my Twitter feed or one of them. I did see that Jim Lewis over at CSIS has suggested that we should not take off the table the idea of a cyber attack against China. Wow. And I'm just thinking about what the secondary and tertiary consequences of such a thing could be. But that is, he's not the only person saying that. I only highlight it because I'm hearing a chorus of voices suggesting that um, this be done. And you, as long as a decade ago, I do remember hearing, you know, sort of major leaders in national security suggesting that in the future, secrets taken or things, you know, exfiltrated could be reclaimed almost in the nature of a reclamation under a letter of mark. Like pirates came, they took our, our, our booty and they left. And now, you know, you're permitted to go and through force, take it back. And so the fact that this is being discussed openly and by credible people is very interesting to me. It really is, especially since, as we've covered many times on the podcast in the past, the law around cyber, what is acceptable or legal in cyberspace and what is not, what the remedies are, what the penalties are, you know, on our way back uh, during the first impeachment, we talked about you know, the indictments of um, Russian agents and disinformation and the fact that we would never attain personal jurisdiction over them and what that actually means. There, These are questions that are really going to be open for quite some time before we nail things down. Thanks for hanging out with us today and we'll come back next week with more content. As always, we'll hyperlink the laws discussed as well as articles on today's topic in the notes to the podcast. We'll continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so that you grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice and be sure to send us comments and feedback as we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at ABA.NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you content on these fast-moving legal developments. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. And before we sign out entirely, don't forget to check out some of the wonderful events that um, Holly and team have been planning. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone. Be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart and even though we all have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. 
The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.